We have been looking at Paul's letter uh, to the Colossians, and one of the, the themes that we've been really hammering at, uh, especially in recent weeks, is this idea that the gospel is meant to shape everything, uh, that the message of the Lord Jesus touches on every aspect of our lives, that if we come to believe these truths about Jesus, it is meant to shape us and to impact the way that we live our lives. And that's something that we have been looking at, especially in Colossians chapter 3. You remember that Paul talked about putting off certain vices that formally characterized our life and were to put on certain virtues, those that are going to reflect the character of Christ in our lives. But he also talked about how our relationships are to be shaped as well, that, that relating one with another, especially in the church, is to be transformed. Uh, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, are to live with one another in a way that honors Christ above all else. They are to be bearing with one another. They are to be forgiving of one another. Uh, They are to be bound together by uh, all things love. And so Paul was saying how the Christian community as a community is to be informed and directed by their understanding of God's grace in Jesus Christ. But we'd looked uh, in recent weeks at what we called the household code. Uh, And what Paul has been doing here is saying that the gospel doesn't just shape the way that you relate, especially with other believers or in the church or even relationships in general, but it affects the way that you live your life day to day. Those with whom you uh, rub shoulders with on on a continual basis. And so it is meant to have implications for the way that wives and husbands relate to one another. They are to show something of the orderliness of relationships and of the the glory of Christ in the way that they relate one to another. Instead of uh, seeking after power, they are to be submitting to the lordship of Christ in a way that builds up the other and serves the interests of Christ. That children and parents are likewise to show uh, orderliness in their uh, relating one to another. And again, it is meant to show an act of submission to Christ in the way that they they live. Uh, Not simply doing what they want, but seeking to honor Christ. This morning, we're looking at a third uh, relationship, a third sphere of the household codes. And we can say perhaps the most controversial of all of them. We're dealing with uh, the relationship between bond servants and masters or owners, between uh, slaves and their masters. We live in a very different world in the 21st century than people lived in the first century Roman world. To appreciate that, we have to understand that in the first century, slavery was woven into the fabric of the Roman civilization. Historians vary in their estimates, but anywhere from 10% all the way up to 33% of the Roman population was thought to be slaves. Slaves worked in every field, every trade, but a large component of the Roman civilization was based on and supported by slavery. Slavery in the Roman world came from various angles. Uh, Some slaves were slaves because they were prisoners of war. They were captured uh, in defeat in battle. 
Some became slaves because of uh, punishment through the judicial system. Uh, the court system made them slaves to their owners as a form of punishment. Others were slaves because they were children of slaves. Others were slaves because they were bought and sold. And so we see there was various reasons why people became slaves in the ancient world. But again, anywhere between 5 million and 10 million people were slaves at this time. And Paul is writing into this world. He is writing into this situation. He's telling Christians how they are to live in the midst of a world that is shaped by slavery. But when we think of slavery, when you think of slavery, your mind probably instinctively goes to the Atlantic slave trade, uh, which was practiced between the 16th and the 19th century, where human beings were purchased and then relocated to other continents, where people were taken from Africa and relocated to Europe and to the Americas. And this happened over hundreds of years. And there is, there is no doubt similarities, but there's also differences between these two kinds of slavery. One obvious difference between the slavery in the first century is, is that in the first century, it was not divided along racial lines. It was not based on the color of someone's skin. It was not, uh, uh, therefore, something that was degrading in the sense of viewing someone as less because of where they came from or because of how they looked. It was much more of a, an economic uh, form of, uh, of an economic system. But at the same time, while there is that difference, there is this commonality between the Atlantic slave trade and the slave trade of the Roman world. Both of them treated human beings as property. Both of them treated other people as what Aristotle would say, living tools. And for Romans, for the Greeks, that was fine. There was no objection to the idea of treating another person as one's property. We live today in the 21st century recognizing that that's wrong. We live recognizing that it is not right to degrade another human being to the status of simply being a property of another. That it is degrading to think of another human being as simply a tool or an instrument to be used at one's own discretion. But as we think about this whole controversial issue of slavery and of the past, it is good for us to pause and to think, where did we come to that conviction at all? What, what makes us think that these things are self-evident, that slavery is wrong? What makes us think that all people are created equal and that all people have an inherent dignity to them? And what we will find is the more we scratch and dig under the surface, it's ultimately this conviction that all people are created in the image of God. And that what we're looking at here is really planting the seeds that would dismantle slavery. And so in some ways we're looking at this and we might, sometimes people will come to the scriptures and they can be frustrated. They can even ask questions and they can say, the Bible approves of slavery. Does the Bible approve of slavery? It does no such thing. You won't find the Bible giving its commendation to slavery. 
both the Old Testament and the New Testament will condemn man-stealing. You turn, for instance, to 1 Timothy. One of the, the sins that is mentioned is explicitly that of kidnapping another person, which is ultimately at the heart of what uh, supports the whole slave institution. But what Paul is doing here as he's writing to the church in Colossae, he is, you could say, very limited in what he is trying to achieve and very radical in what he is trying to uh, bring to pass. He's limited in what he is trying to achieve in the sense that Paul doesn't just say blow it all up. But rather he's more radical in that because Paul is wanting the church to begin to understand the issue is how you relate to one another. And if the way that you think about other people and the way that you relate to other people is being transformed, then it is going to ultimately bring about the end of slavery itself. So Paul here is dealing with a situation where millions upon millions of people are slaves. We might ask the question, why doesn't Paul just simply say, get rid of slavery? But it's a lot more complicated than that. We have to remember that in the ancient world, there is no social system. Um, we have to remember that the whole economy is built on slaves. If a slave master simply releases a slave, one, they're not a Roman citizen, uh, ipso facto. But secondly, they're now vulnerable to starvation and to poverty. So there's many things to consider when we're thinking about Paul's admonition here uh, to the relationship between slaves and masters. There's more going on, you could say, than simply freedom. Paul is talking about how we treat one another and how we treat one another is based on how we view one another before God. That is the foundation that dismantles slavery. And so this morning we want to come and to look at this uh, issue, uh, understanding uh, Paul's intention, uh, helping people to be transformed in the way that they relate with one another. You may have noticed that as we read uh, through Colossians uh, in this whole section dealing with the, the family life, that the day-to-day -day living, how does the gospel change the way that the home is run? Paul's treatment here on slavery on how servants are to treat their masters uh, is way longer than any other relationship that he mentions. The relationship between husbands and wives is very concise. The relationship between children and their parents is very concise. But he gives a lot more treatment to this whole idea of how servants, bond servants, are to relate to their masters. And a, re a good reason for that is because the church in Colossae is most likely composed mainly of slaves. Uh, we actually know that. Uh, at least we know one of them. Uh, later on in chapter 4, you'll notice that Paul makes mention that he is sending to them Onesimus. And, and he says that I'm sending to you Onesimus and he is one of you. What's significant about that? Is because when you read in other letters of the New Testament, Paul writes a letter to a man named Philemon. And Paul is sending to Philemon Onesimus but he's turning uh, Onesimus back to Philemon as a runaway slave. Onesimus had run away from his master. He had met Paul. 
He had come to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And Paul said, I wanted to keep him on my team. I wanted him to be of service to me. But I am sending him back to you. But when you read that letter to Philemon, you notice that the admonition that he gives to Philemon is, is I'm sending back Onesimus to you, not to be treated as a slave, but so that you will treat him as a beloved brother. What Paul was doing there is he was, he was helping Philemon to say, this is what is to shape your relationship now with Onesimus. He's not your property. He's your brother in the Lord. If, if he's your brother in the Lord, that's going to shape the way that you relate with him. He's not at your disposal as a tool. He is one who is cared for and loved by God. And so Paul here, as he is dealing with this whole controversial issue, where millions of people in that time were living in slavery, is trying to help those who are in this situation, how do they honor the Lord in it? What do they do in their situation where they're powerless? What do they do in their situation uh, in a way that honors their Lord? And this morning we want to see that because Christ is Lord, we are to act righteously and faithfully in our service of others. We want to think about uh, these verses and just the two uh, main thoughts. We want to think about the directive towards slaves and the directive towards masters. It says there in verse 22, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. That language uh, as we've said already, has to be qualified or read in terms of its context. When Paul tells uh, bond servants to obey in everything, we have to read that in light of what Paul has just said. That is, doing whatever you do in word or in deed, giving thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. That they are to put off the vices of uh, their former way of life. In other words, these bond servants, these slaves, are not to live or to simply uh, do whatever they're told. But there are limits to their obedience. Their obedience, their allegiance, is first and foremost uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. But he tells them uh, to obey as a guiding principle, uh, that they are to be known for their obedience uh, and marked by that characteristic. He says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You know exactly what Paul's talking about here, don't you? If you've been in the workplace with a, a group of people, uh, there will be a range of people in their work ethics. Some people uh, will work uh, at a very minimal standard. But then when the boss comes, when the management comes, when the supervisor comes, uh, they pick up the productivity. Uh, when the bosses around look busy. Uh, but the implication is, is that otherwise you should do as little as possible to avoid getting into trouble. That your aspiration to work is to do the least amount that you have to because you don't really want to. And Paul's saying that that's insincere service. Uh, that's a, that's a, a hypocritical way of serving. Uh, rather, we should be sincere the way that we work should not be just to be noticed by others, but our work should be driven by a desire to do what is right uh, in the sight of God. So he tells them not to do it simply uh, uh, to be noticed, but rather at a sincerity of heart. 
you can uh, uh, appreciate that a, a servant, uh, uh, even as an employee today, uh, sometimes can feel resentful uh, of those who are over them in their workforce. Uh, they may not want to work hard because they don't feel like the one they're working for is worthy of it. Uh, my, my boss uh, is, is unfair. My boss uh, is, is not worthy of my hard work. It's, I shouldn't contribute any more than I have to. And Paul here is addressing that, that mindset where they don't want to work uh, because of the uh, unworthiness of their uh, master. The slave, though, is to consider their service as an act of obedience to the Lord. So he says in verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That word heartily simply means uh, to put your whole being into it. You think about even in recent days with the snowstorm that we had. Uh, after the snowstorm, we had all that snow to clear out and all the shoveling that went with it. And when you're shoveling, you're putting your whole being into that exercise. You're bending your knees. You're lifting uh, the, the snow. You're tossing the snow. When you're done, your, your body aches, not just in one spot, not just your back, but your, your shoulders and your knees. You're, you're sore all over because your whole being was involved. Uh, that that you, you, feel, you feel like you've, you've invested yourself. And Paul here is using that way of uh, talking that we are to be putting ourselves, our whole being, into our work. And that's really a liberating way of thinking about work. It's liberating because it tells us that the end for our work is worthy. What we're working for is not ultimately our master. What we're working for is not ultimately uh, for the worthiness of the one over us, but we are working ultimately uh, for the Lord himself. The Apostle Peter, which we read uh, earlier, uh, makes the same point. He tells his servants to be subject to their masters, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. When, we see, when they see uh, their obedience is unto the Lord, they're not focused on whether their master is worthy or not. But it's also liberating not only to know that what they're working for is an act of service to the Lord, but it's liberating because it tells them that their work itself is worthy. To work hard is worthy in itself. When slaves strive to obey in everything, when they call themselves wholeheartedly to a task without needing recognition or acknowledgement, even if their work is not appreciated or is even criticized by uh, another, they are acting ultimately for a higher end. They're working to honor their God. And you can begin to see how, even though this is talking about slaves and masters, you can begin to see that there's principles here that are abiding. What Paul's talking about in the first century can still extend even to the 21st century. We're not in the relationship of slave and master. And the relationship of an employee and an employer is not the same. But there are principles that carry on. And the principles that should characterize an employee's work ethic should still be one of integrity. It should still be one of hard working. It should still be one of striving to honor the Lord in their work. So even if they're not noticed for their work ethic, even if their employer doesn't appreciate their work or even criticizes them. 
this prevents them from ultimately resentment and bitterness or from despair because they're doing it as an act of worship to their Lord. I invest myself in this work as a way of honoring God with the gifts and the callings that he has given to me. And so Paul here uh, is giving principles that should shape uh, their mindset. I am working not just for this person. I am laboring ultimately uh, as an act of worship to the Lord. So uh, a Christian employee should be marked by hardworking, uh, reliability, and honesty. And so a Christian worker can rest in the fact that ultimately uh, they're uh, serving the Lord and not men or women. So there's the directive that is given to them, to obey in everything, a general overarching directive uh, that needs to be understood in context. But Paul gives not just the directive here, he gives the motivation as well. Uh, he goes on to say in verses 24 and 25, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward, for you are serving Christ. That's something that Paul has already mentioned. Uh, one motivation for what is to guide uh, the servants is, is that they are serving Christ ultimately. That they're not fixated on their masters, but they're fixated on uh, serving Christ in their situation. But you notice that he gives more motivations. There in verse 24, he mentions inheritance. Paul appeals to something that he is convinced that they already know about. Uh, you will receive the, the, the inheritance uh, as your reward. Now, you young people, I have a question. What do slaves typically inherit? Nothing. If you think back even to when Israel was in Egypt, they were slaves. What do they inherit as slaves? Nothing. They simply work. They are just used uh, for what they can get from them. They are used as property, as belonging to another. They're used for the advantage of another, ultimately. But you notice here that when Paul talks to these bond servants, he talks to them as those who are inheritors. For you will inherit uh, the reward that is promised to you. Why is Paul talking this way? It's because Paul is recognizing that ultimately they aren't slaves. That in Christ they have been adopted into the family of God. The New Testament is very clear that slaves don't inherit, it's sons that inherit. That's why Paul would say in Galatians, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, they have come to inherit because of their belonging to Christ. They're in Christ through faith. And now they have been brought into the family of God and they share in all the benefits that Christ has accomplished. So rather than being beat down by their lot in life, I'm in a situation that I, I can't, I'm powerless to overcome. I'm in a situation where, where I, am, I am treated as an object. I'm in a situation where I am disposed of and treated like property to another. Paul is saying, but you're not. Ultimately, you are precious in God's sight. You are a child of the living God. You have an inheritance. And so your work is not aimed at simply striving for self. 
Your work is ultimately from the posture of who you are. Your worth is already established in Christ. Your, your sense of value is already given to you as you understand who you are through the Lord Jesus Christ. They are those uh, who have been delivered not only from sin, but they are those who have come to share in the blessings accomplished in Christ. What is this inheritance? Uh, the inheritance is eternal life. Uh, it is elsewhere described as salvation. It is a place in the new heavens and the new earth. They're living then not just simply by what their present moment says about them. I'm important because of my lot in life. They're able to live faithfully in their lot in life because they know that ultimately they belong to the Lord. They are trusting God in this situation because they know what God has done for them in Christ. Their reward, though, isn't something that they inherit. It's not something that they earn. It's not as if Paul is saying, if you are uh, faithful in this situation, then you will inherit. You remember how he began this letter back in Colossians 1. He talked about how we are to give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. What they have in Christ is because God gave it to them. They have come to have a share in that inheritance because of God's grace. And that's, that's meant to transform their way of thinking about themselves. I am what I am because of the grace of God. But that also means that I have a sense of identity that is secure in a world where I might be treated like trash. I know who I am because I belong to my God and Savior. This begins to shape the way that they are to look at work. When you think about work, why do you work at what you work at? We can be very pragmatic and say, well, I work at what I work at in order to make ends meet, to put food on the table, to be able to provide for myself and my loved ones. Yes, but when we work, why do we strive for excellence? We strive for excellence, not ultimately for self. Not so that other people notice me. Not so that I make accomplishments. Not so that I have achievements and I stand out above others. We strive for excellence because of who we are. We strive for excellence because we belong to a God who is excellent. And we want to honor him in our situation. We want to be faithful servants. That's what Paul is getting at here. Obey in everything as a way of serving Christ, as a way of honoring Christ, who himself was marked by obedience. That you are to live in a way knowing that you have an inheritance in Christ and that you don't have to be uh, controlled by one's own situation. That doesn't mean that a, a slave shouldn't aspire to, to, to strive for freedom or aspire for better things. Of course they should. But what it means is, is that a slave is able to live trusting in God, in the lots that he has put them in. That they are able to live trusting in the Lord rather than resentment or in bitter, bitterness. So there is this motivation. They know they have an inheritance. They are secure in who they are before God. There's also the motivation there in verse 25. He says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. And there is no partiality. Um, Slaves are to be mindful that those who do wrong will be accountable to God. 
That is true of masters, but it's also true of slaves. It's true of slaves because uh, slaves, even as Onesimus showed, are capable of doing wrong things. But more than that, Paul is still talking to slaves as he highlights these words. We are to realize that ultimately we're accountable to God for how we live. And that is to be a motivation that cautions us against simply self-pursuit. So Paul here is uh, shaping their way of thinking, uh, honoring the Lord, serving Christ uh, as a way uh, uh, in their, their situation in life. But then he secondly gives directives to masters. In verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. What is central here is how uh, masters are to treat their bondservants. Again, you come back to that idea. Paul's logic is limited, but it's more radical. It's limited in terms of what he's expecting of them, but it's more radical at the same time. He's commanding masters to uphold righteousness and an equal treatment across the board. Limited. What's radical about it? He's telling masters to reflect the character of God in the way that they treat other human beings. That that these bond servants will have a sense of what is righteous. Is there actually a standard of righteousness in this world that governs this world? Where do I see it? Masters are to be a mirror that teaches there is a righteousness that we're held accountable to. They're to display a just action towards their bondservants so that they themselves know that we are all accountable before God. And if they are treating their bondservants righteously, if they're attending to their needs, if they're upholding their needs as they would for their own, Again, they're not treating them as property, but they are treating them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And ultimately, it will bring about human flourishing. They are, they are to show God's righteousness in the way that they treat one another. Again, we can take these principles and we can carry them forward even to our own day. You think about the relationship between employees and employers, between employees and their management. You think about the conflict or the clash that oftentimes hits the news. Uh, protests by employees going on strike. Unions that are fighting for greater uh, rights, uh, greater uh, benefits. Don't feel like they're being appreciated uh, for their work. Employers who uh, can try to uh, get rid of employees or who are suspicious that their employees are simply a drain on the system. Finding loopholes ways in which they can maximize uh, their benefits and they're left fitting, uh, 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 taking the bill. There can be a mutual suspicion of distrust that characterize the relationship between employee and an employer. They're each trying to outwit one another. But what Paul here is teaching is that in the workforce, employees and employers are to live under the lordship of God. They're to do what is right in God's sight. 
and they are to honor the relationship of authority. And that when that happens, it will bring flourishing. But both have to be focused on something beyond themselves. And that's what's key here. Paul is teaching Christians to serve the Lord in their situation. To live in a way that honors Christ uh, rather than self. To live in a way recognizing that uh, Christ's obedience is the grounds of their inheritance and their hope of eternal life. When we're living in light of Christ's work, we're no longer fixated on our own self and treating others as objects for our own good. As we think about these passages, it, it challenges us in many different ways. Do we treat other people simply as objects, as tools? Or do we treat them as image bearers created by God? Do you recognize that you live your life and that you must give an account before God who judges justly and shows no partiality? Do you recognize that God is a God who will hold us accountable for the way that we treat one another? Do you recognize that your faith is to come into the workforce? That there's no division in that sense. But all of life is to be lived to the glory of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.